been thinking about Temple as we've been continuing on our journey through Route 66. We're, we're uh, going through the scriptures. This is an extended series. We'll be in and out of it. But uh, uh, for the most of, of, of these two years or so it'll take us, we're, we're going one book at a time through the Bible, getting an overview, that big picture. What is the whole of God's story about? Call it Route 66 because there's a really famous highway, so it makes a good starting point, and because there are 66 books in the Bible. But they are all one story. And we're, and we're on that journey together. Well, as we've been going through Route 66, we've been, we've made, some people have questioned some of my turns. They've questioned the route I've taken because, well, we started in Genesis. That seemed to be a good thing. And we carried on through the history books for a while. And we paused. And when we picked it back up again, instead of carrying on from Kings into Chronicles, we jumped over to the wisdom books. And we did Job and Psalms. And, and Psalms is a temple-ish kind of a book a lot about worship and psalms. And we went to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, what we do with the, the, with the temple of our body. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more today as well. And, and now we're returning on Route 66 back to the his, historical books, to First Chronicles. Why is that? Well, if I, if I could explain it this way, uh, it would, it'll make a little more sense why we pause. One of the reasons is first Samuel and Kings gave us history on up to the time of the, of the captivities of Israel. And then we, we went to some of the prophets and we, because those prophets spoke into that time. Well, this is the time. Let's hear what the prophets were saying in the time. Then I saved the other historical summary books, Chronicles, in order to have a review of that historical time and then again, we'll finish the rest of the prophets. What did the prophets have to say to God's people in that time? So now we're returning to Chronicles. Would that lead you to a question? Really? Chronicles? Have you read First Chronicles? It starts off really slow, doesn't it? Doesn't it start off slow? You got nine chapters of genealogy before you even get started. Now, there's a couple of people in the room who, who, who like that family history stuff, you know, who go on websites and they just get all excited about that. Maybe that's, you, you might even find some of your own family in there. I don't, I, I don't know. But for most of us, those genealogies, that seems to get old pretty quickly. And then from there, it goes into the life of David in First Chronicles. And it's all about David's life all the way through the rest of the book. And he, he hands over to Solomon at the very end. And we're thinking, it seems like we've read this story. It seems like this is a repeat from, from the book of Second Samuel. Is, is, this, is this plagiarism? You know, I get in trouble for that at school. What's, what's going on here in First Chronicles compared to Second Samuel? Well, something very different. And I, I could best explain that with uh, what, I, what I referred to in your notes, and I gave you some notes in, in the bulletin to follow along with. I could best explain that with some driving tips. As you read through the Bible, one of the important driving tips is to understand the historical setting and the context. For instance, when was First Chronicles written? As we start reading, it, it talks about David and Saul, and so we might think maybe in that time, but that's not true. Because as you read further in those genealogies, you find that the genealogies are traced through David's family and one king after another all the way through the captivity period. 
In fact, they give a listing of people, some of the first people who returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem after the captivity. Now, how in the middle of Chronicles did the writer know that? That's when he's writing. So Chronicles is, 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 First Chronicles is about David, but it was written long after David, looking backwards. Well, what were those people at that time, after that captivity, what were they facing? Driving tip. Consider the, the historical context. If you know roughly when the book was written, what was going on there? What was the need of the people that God, through this book, was speaking into? Okay? They're returning. Returning from captivity. They are a discouraged and a desolate people. They had had the promise of David and great David's golden years and a temple was built and it was going to be wonderful. Israel was going to be a light to the nations and, and they would worship God truly in that temple. And, and the other nations would come to know God as well through this nation gathering at that temple. And it didn't happen. The nation spiraled downward. They end up, both of them, first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom, they both end up carried away into captivity because they do not follow the Lord. They follow idols instead. How can they lead others toward worship of the one true God when they have abandoned him themselves and gone other directions? And so in Babylon, those in that captivity, they, they, they have been cured of their idolatry. They have had so many idols around them, they're sick of them. They're cured of their idolatry, but... They are discouraged. They are perhaps without hope. Can it ever be like it was supposed to be? Now, there's a connection point for us there. We look, back, we look first of all at what the Bible tells us about what the Christian life is supposed to be, what life in a church is supposed to be, what my experience with the Lord, it seems, is supposed to be, and I compare that to my reality and in the past, and it hasn't been like that. And we can despair. We're going to keep going. We're going to go through the motions, but maybe without the same level of hope. Is God's promise really going to be realized? God made a promise to David. In fact, it's the point of First Chronicles. It's almost the center of the book. And the book builds to that, and then the book carries on from there. It's definitely the high point. Because God is still going to complete that promise. Even when the nation itself, the people, don't have any resources by which they could carry it out, God is still going to do it. To not understand the, the, the background of, the, of, uh, of driving is you're, not, you're going to be surprised. You're not going to make sense out of what you find along the road as we're going to survey. We're going to drive through First Chronicles in just a minute. It's kind of like, let's say you're driving out west. Maybe not Route 66. It doesn't go this way. But maybe you're driving out west and you come through the Tetons and you wind up in Yellowstone Park. And you're driving through Yellowstone Park, but you didn't notice the sign as you came into because the highway goes right through Yellowstone Park. And you've been driving through the Tetons anyway, so you're, oh, there's more forests, there's more trees, there's mountainous roads, there's nothing different here. Whoa, all of a sudden, in your windshield in front of you, there's a herd of buffalo crossing the road. Now, what, how do I make sense out of the, where did these buffalo come from? Because there aren't supposed to be buffalo on the road. Have you seen buffalo around here on the road recently? No, there's lots of trees, there are mountains, there are mountain roads, there are no buffalo. 
Well, if you'd notice the sign that I'm in Yellowstone Park there. These buffalo are here for a reason. Buffalo live in Yellowstone Park. Oh, I make sense of that. I would be actually looking for buffalo if I was driving through Yellowstone Park because I'm a tourist at heart. Okay, well, what should we be looking for as we're driving through First Chronicles? Rather than with anticipated boredom, with those sightseeing glasses on, what should I see here? I think you'll see something different as we, as we um, survey through, as we take a quick drive through the book of First Chronicles. As I mentioned, it starts out with genealogies, but you know, it starts with Adam. It's a good place to start. That's where all of us come from. We, we share in, in, in Adam's fall. But in chapter 2, we get down to Israel. And it starts off in chapter 2 with the right order as you would anticipate it, with, with Jacob's firstborn. And it goes on through in the order that and finally, finally Judah is mentioned. But in verse 3, we jump to Judah. And now we have an extended three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, focus on Judah. Why would you focus on Judah in this genealogy? That was about Israel. It's not that the chronicler didn't know which son came first. He did. Reuben came first, and yet he spends all of his focus on Judah. He does that because Judah comes down to David and then traces it further from David's line through Solomon and on all the way through the rest of the kings and kind of a miserable lot they mostly were. The other thing is you, as you trek through the genealogies, you find there's an inordinate amount of emphasis not only given to Judah, David's family line, but also the Levites. That's where the priest and the temple servants come from. In fact, there are several chapters. Or chapter 6, right in the middle of genealogies, you have this emphasis on Levi. And then as you go further, you have uh, more about the temple servants. At the end of the book, you have a huge focus on the temple servants as well. So we have Levites and priests and temple servants, and there's names, and there's names, and there's names, and there's names. And one of the things I took away from Chronicles, before I saw something else that we're going to see today, but one of the things long ago I took from First Chronicles, the names matter. Nobody else remembers the names. Coming back from Babylon, these are people that if their history has been stolen from them. But God hasn't forgotten their heritage. God has not forgotten their heritage. God has not forgotten their future. And each one of these people in these genealogies have mattered to God. And what each one of them did, as insignificant as it might seem to us, it apparently matters to God. You can take that into the temple today, I think, pretty easily. Nobody else might know your name, but God does. What you do matters. It matters before him, if nothing else. Those, so you have these genealogies. They emphasize David. They emphasize servants in the temple. All right? So then, focusing on David, we're not surprised when we get to chapter 10, and there's, there's Saul and his sons, but Saul is introduced just to explain how David comes to the throne. Saul's reign ends, David ascends, David is anointed king in chapter 11, he is the victorious king in chapters 11 and 12. So now you have David on the throne and things are going well. Things are going so well that they're going to finally bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become David's capital, well the Ark of the Covenant, the center of God's worship, should be there. Okay? But, but they try to do that wrongly. And there's this first, uh, one of the uh, bad moves of David. There are two mistakes of David that are mentioned in this book. 
We're surprised by what's here. We're surprised by what's not. One of them is bringing the ark. David is not able to bring the ark because they they do it the wrong way and the ark is stuck outside of Jerusalem. So David's sin, in a sense, prevents the ark from coming. Now chapter 14, 15, 16, David's house is built. By house, I mean two things. David's family is built up, and David has a nice house built for him, a mansion in Jerusalem. A king should have a palace, right? We're not surprised by that. A king ought to have a palace, but it bothers David because as it's, as it's laid out in these chapters, there's a contrast. Well, one of the kings of Tyre in chapter 14, starting in verse 1, the king of Tyre sent messengers to David, and he sent some cedar trees. He sent some masons and carpenters. I guess Jim was there. He sent them to build a house for him, and David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. His kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of the people of Israel, and they're going to build a house for David. Somebody out there is sending the goods to build David a house. So, chapter 15, David built houses for himself in the city of David, Jerusalem. He prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. And so now they are going to, they're going to bring the ark of the covenant back correctly. They're going to do it the way the scripture said to carry the ark. And the ark is going to come back to Jerusalem. Chapter 16 and verse 1, they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. The ark is in a tent. David lives in a house. And that doesn't seem right. So David in chapter 17, David lived in his house. David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar. It's a beautiful place. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan says, Do all that you... Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. David wants, he says, it's not right. I'm in a fancy palace. I'm in a nice house. God's ark is in a tent. That's not right. That's upside down, and David's determined to fix it. He checks with the prophet. The prophet said, sounds good to me. So David makes his plans. Proverbs says, a man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. And the Lord does that with David as well. He said, it's a, it's a good thing you're trying to do here. It's a good thing that you want to, to build a house for me. But I didn't ask you to do that. Look at verse 3. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. I'm sorry, chapter 17 and verse 3. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it's not for you who will build me a house to dwell in, For I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. I haven't had a temple. They're talking about the temple when it says house. But I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house? Now therefore, this you'll say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies before you. I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Remember that story in the, in the book of the Judges, how, how 
God's people would, would fall into sin. Others would come in and oppress them and uh, take it. Uh, they rob and pillage and, and uh, carry them away into captivity and so forth. He says, that's not going to happen anymore. There's going to come a day when, when violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house, David. David says, I want to build a house to the Lord. The Lord says, David, I'm going to build you a house. And by that, he means a dynasty. The, the king of Tyre already built him a cedar house. God is going to build him a family house. God is going to build him a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Watch what's said here. He, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will establish his throne, that son's throne forever, and that son will build a house for me. Okay, so there's the history. Uh, there's, a, there's a promise. The promises God makes concerning a place forever, disturb no more. No, no other armies are going to come in and spoil God's people as they have in the past. These are forever promises. Historically spoken to David before the captivity, but they were not completed in Solomon. The captivity shows us that. The people that went into captivity know they did not experience the fulfillment of those promises. Will it ever happen? Are those promises any good anymore? Will God be finish what he began? That's a question that matters not only to the, these Israelites out of this captivity. That's a question that matters to you and I. Will God finish what he has begun with us? He has begun this thing called salvation, this thing called transformation, new life, changing the water into wine in, in, in my life. He's begun that. Will he finish it? Will I actually be, will you actually experience that being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ that you long for? When this life is done, and when they lay you in the ground, do you have a hope that goes beyond the grave, that the eternal in the heavens, will you actually be absent from the body, present with the Lord, awaiting that resurrection day when you will be glorified, and when he appears, we will be like him. Is that all really true? Is it really going to happen? Is God going to finish it? You see, when God makes a promise that he keeps it is important. It's not only important historically. It's not merely a matter of is the Bible reliable. Can I take God at his word enough that I can hang everything else in life on that? I'll direct my life, I'll direct my choices around the promises of God. Can I do that? Is it real? Will God keep his promises? Okay, so these people coming back out of Babylon after a long time in Babylon, they're wondering, will any of that ever happen? Well, the book goes on. 18, 19, and 20, you have David's kingdom consolidated. He's defeated the Philistines, the Moabs, the, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites, everybody else, including the city of Rabbah. This is interesting. Because Rabbah was the city that David's army was sent out to attack when David stayed home in 2 Samuel and, and there was the Bathsheba incident. But that's not told in 1 Chronicles. Why? It's not part of the story. It's not part of the purpose. It's not that the, the author is neglecting it to make David look better than he was. 
that is not, David's sin isn't going to get in, in the way of, of God's promise here. But David's sin in trying to move the ark the wrong way is told because that mattered about the temple. When you're going to build the temple, it has to be done the right way. That's the point of the book. And so there is a sin that's mentioned here. Bathsheba's not mentioned, but in verse 21, David conducts a census, and that census, it's mentioned because that census results in God sending a plague as punishment. You say, well, why a census? A census is that bad? Why do we do one every 10 years in America if it's that evil? Well, this was a matter of David counting up his army because he's going to trust in his army instead of trusting in the Lord. That was the root issue. And so, God, God sends some judgment, and, but the judgment is stayed. When the angel of the Lord, with his sword drawn over Jerusalem, is, is, is on this hill, and it's a threshing floor. Because a high point in the city was a place where the wind would be blowing and wouldn't be blocked by other hills or buildings. And there you could throw the wheat, toss the wheat up into the air, and, and, you, and the wind would carry away the chaff, and the kernels would fall back down. You could thresh wheat on a high point of the, of the surrounding landscape. And so on this threshing floor, the angel of the Lord is paused with his sword drawn. You normally don't see angels, but David sees him. And he ends up, he buys that land to place an altar there. He places an altar there and offers a sin offering to the Lord for his sin. And there's the picture of, I might have dirty hands. I might sin. But God's judgment is stopped. Or God's judgment falls upon a substitute in my place. In that case, this sacrifice on that altar. You know where that altar was? That altar was the site that now David will, build, will organize for his son to build the temple. That threshing floor where that altar that stopped this plague of judgment, that's where the temple's going to go because the temple is to demonstrate this. That here will be a place of sacrifice where the sins of the people will be atoned for by the blood of an innocent sacrifice that is going to point to a hill outside Jerusalem where the Son of God would one day die for the sins of the world, taking away our sin, taking away our guilt, because our sin, our guilt, is put upon a substitute. Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice that every sacrifice of the temple pointed to. Okay. So there, that, that sin of David, the census, is included because it connects to what? Temple. The building of the temple is established on that place where because of David's sin, a sin offering was needed, and there is the offering. That's where the temple will be. That's why that's included in the story. And then from there it goes on, just to wrap up, you continually, um, D David is gathering materials for the temple. David is organizing the Levites in chapter 23. He's organizing the priests in chapter 24. He's organizing even the musicians and the worship team in chapter 25. Even the gatekeepers and the ushers in chapter 26. All of these roles are important in temple worship, you see. And you can find the, uh, the, the comparisons even as we gather and worship the Lord. When people are going to gather and worship, worship the Lord in a particular way, there's a lot of details to include in that. And that's what the rest of the book then gets, ends up being wrapped up in. At one point, there's a charge from David to Solomon that he is going to be the one. That Solomon is going to be anointed. The, the word that's used is actually, he is going to be the prince of the Lord. He's not anointed as king. He's anointed as the prince of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Solomon. 
Solomon's name comes from the same three-letter Hebrew root as the word shalom, peace. Here we have the prince of the Lord, the son of David, whose name means peace. Wow. That's to suggest something else in the future. Solomon isn't going to live forever. Solomon isn't going to reign forever. Solomon is going to build a temple that will not endure forever. But it's all pointing to something further, an ultimate fulfillment of this promise to David that there will be a son of David, there will be a descendant of David who will build this temple. See, the book of First, the book of First Chronicles is all about this. Most simply put, a son of David who restore a broken people and gather and organize them together to build a temple for the glory and worship of God. When those returnees come back out of captivity, they're going to be tasked with building again a temple. And we'll see that as we go through the later prophets. They're tasked with building this temple, and this, this book is meant to encourage them that what God has promised is still valid. We're still looking towards it. It's still going to be fulfilled. So there's a son of David. As Micah chapter 5, beginning of verse 2, says, The son of David is going to come from Bethlehem, a son of David who is from old, from everlasting, who will give them up for a time, but will stand and regather and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and this one shall be their peace. The book of Micah allows people to make sense out of a coming captivity when the Lord seemed to give up his people for a time. But there's going to be one who is going to regather the flock. There's going to be one who's going to regather his people and who's going to build them up again, restore them again. And it says, this one shall be their peace. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6? says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, a son of David. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the what? The Prince of Peace, a Prince of the Lord named Peace. Solomon pointed to another son of David. Solomon points to another son of David. A son of David who would restore a broken people and gather them together to build a temple for the glory and worship of God. The immediate context, after the exile... A discouraged and desolate people, a broken nation returns. They're reminded of God's promise, and by God's promise, they build again a testimony to the Lord in that place. That's not the finish of it. But they are encouraged to build again a testimony of the Lord that will point to the one who is coming, that son of David who will come and who will build up that temple ultimately. First Chronicles anticipates a greater son of David. Okay. He was the one who said, destroy this temple, in three days I'll rebuild it. Remember that? John chapter 2, I think it is. Stirred up trouble early in John. And they assumed he was talking about the temple that was still under renovation there in Jerusalem. But John makes clear in his gospel, no, he was talking about his own body. He was, you destroy this body, he says, and in three days I will raise it up again. His body was a temple of the Lord. It is Jesus, not Solomon, who is our peace. Jesus is the Isaiah 9-6, Prince of Peace. Today, Jesus is building his temple to restore a broken people to rightly worship the one true God. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way. Ephesians chapter 2. 
speaking of Jesus, it says, and he came and preached peace. See that, that reoccurring theme of a way for peace with God. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The temple was all about having access to God. How and where could I draw near to God? That's what the temple was supposed to portray and show. For through him we both have one, one access in one spirit to the Father. So, verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You belong. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God, the family of God. And now he shifts the metaphor. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's a building now. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, watch this, in whom the whole structure, the church, those people of God are a structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus, the greater son of David, is building his temple for a restored people to worship him. Okay? I told you all of that. All of that is, is First Chronicles. God is, is going to build his temple. It's going to be built by a, by a son of David who will build up this temple, who will gather and restore a people to, to draw them together in right worship of him in ways that portray his glory and are a testimony in their midst to the nations around them of the one true God and salvation that is in his name. That's the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament. That's the purpose that First Chronicles points to, and it points to a temple that the son of David, Jesus, would build, and Paul picks it up and says, you are that temple. He's building it. Here. Who'd have thought? Jerusalem makes sense. Imagine. Brush Prairie? God is building his temple here. God is building his temple in your neighborhood. God is building his temple for a testimony of his salvation for the nations around about. He's doing it here. He's doing it with us. That's what Paul says. If I could paraphrase a little bit. Well, if that's true, there's a couple of things we should consider. What then does that mean to us? What difference does it make? What do I do with that if we are the temple? And I'm talking corporately, first of all. If we are the temple of God, what does that mean? Well, Paul builds on this, on this uh, theme. He, he actually writes to a church that is having some issues, having some difficulties, and he, and he uses this truth to help, to help them sort of redirect and get back on course again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, then there are, there, are, there, are, there are a couple of, there are three points that I want to make about what do we do. If, we, if we're building the temple, if we're in the construction zone, can I use those terms? If we're in the construction zone, how do we build? What do we do? First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You need to know that first of all. You, you are not just you. You are not just people. We're not just merely human. We are the temple of the living God. And the you here is plural, the you together. It, it's singular somewhere else. Here it's plural. You together are the temple. A local church together is the, is the temple of God. If anyone destroys God's temple, he said, God, take that real seriously. 
You destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, God's temple is unique, God's temple is special, and you are that temple. We need to take very seriously, first of all, how we together then, how we worship corporately, what we do together that is not merely for me, but is for God's temple. How do I strengthen God's temple? How do I build God's temple? How do I advance the purpose of God's temple on this earth in that corporate sense, first of all? Because God's people united together in a local place are together a temple. There are things that we can do that can be divisive. I want my own way. I make the temple about me when the temple is not about me. The temple is about God. Be careful what you do. That could detract, that could bring division, that could bring hurts within the temple. How instead could I build up that temple? How could I strengthen the way people come together to worship God? How could I encourage others there rather than drawing off of them for myself? This is not about me. Our gathering together. It's not about our own kind of consumer mindset that I go to church to get something. I go to church to be together with other believers that we together would be a temple that honors and glorifies God and is a testimony to his salvation in Jesus Christ in this place, in this community. Together, they will know you are Christians, that you will show them something about me, Jesus said, and they'll know it's real by your love one for another, how we together are that temple. Be careful how we build together. Protect and build up together God's temple. Number two is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. So turn over just a couple of pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul changes the metaphor slightly now. He, he makes it singular now. You individually, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is within you? whom you have from God, that you are not your own, that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your own body. In the context he's making, he says the choices you make matter. David couldn't build the temple. David was a man of war. He had bloody hands. His son would build the temple. And God's pointing to no man can build this temple. All of us have bloody hands. All of us have guilt. His son has no guilt. Jesus, the greater son of David, has no guilt. He took our guilt on himself. And now, having been cleansed in Christ, how will we then live? The daily choices you make are temple choices. The daily choices you and I make, will I look at this? Will I do that? Will I, will I spend my money on that? Will I give my time to this? Those are choices of devotion. What will I give myself to? Will I honor God in this temple of mine, this weak and fleshly body in which his Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ, his Holy Spirit has taken residence? Will I worship God in my body? What we do matters. Every one of us, every name, it matters. Devote yourself your body, your time, your hours, your minutes, not somebody else's, but your actions and activity and the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, because I am your temple. 
They're a traveling temple. That's, that's not surprising. The Ark of the Covenant was. As you travel about, how will your life, how will my life, as we travel about, how will we be that traveling testimony, which the temple is supposed to be, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation? Oh, let other people see it real in me. Finally, first, uh, uh, third one in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, focus this one down to verse 16. There's an extended passage here that you can read, but we're going to relook at just verse, te- verse uh, 16. If the church is a temple, if believers within a church are temples of the Spirit of God, if we are temples that Jesus is building up for His glory, what... Let's see, verse 16, let me find it again. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. When Paul says living God, he has idolatry, false gods, false attractions in contrast. And again, it speaks to my devotion. It speaks to my choices. What choices will I make? What will I trust in? Will I trust in God? Will I trust in others? Will I give my affection to God? Will I give my affection to others? What will I devote my life to? The worship of God and the making his name known. What is that perspective class all about? Isn't it about church as a temple? As a temple which is a testimony of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. The substitute who died in our place, there's the sacrifices, in the midst of a community that they would look at us and they would see the reality of God's salvation and Jesus in our lives, not because we're perfect, but because we traffic in forgiveness, because we know what it feels like ourselves and we freely then give it away. And that will honor God in this temple. Idols that we trusted instead, even if they're our own being good enough, or there are other things that we trust in life. When trouble comes, where do I turn? Where is my confidence really? Is it really in the doctor or it is in the Lord? Is it in my bank account or it is in my God who will deliver me? Do I sweat the financial circumstances that are coming or do I say, in the midst of that, my God holds me? And the genuineness of that is seen by the people around us. And folks, in this day and age, they need it. They need to see people who know their God and have learned to trust him. That's how we, you and I, will be a temple to the Lord in our context in the day that we live. Chronicles is about God building a temple. It's about a temple that God would establish A temple that would testify to his salvation in his son. A temple that would be built by his son. You and I can't build our own lives. He's doing that. And the promise of 1 Chronicles is yet true. In Philippians, he promises us, he who began his good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ and his coming. We will be today his temple because he is finishing us for his glory. This table represents that foundation. This table is what the temple is built on. This table, the sacrifice of Christ that we remember here, that's what our church is founded on. That's what you're individually being a temple. You are a temple 
of the Holy Spirit if you have believed in Jesus Christ who died for you in his physical body that the, the, that the bread remembers. That his blood was shed, his life was poured out for your guilt and for my guilt. On that foundation, I have become, you become, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So this table that we come to now, we've, we've reserved it today for after this word for that purpose, that we would see this temple, we would see his salvation as the foundation of our church. We would see this table, the sacrifice of Christ, his death for you. You would see that as the foundation of your life being completely different, your life having a new purpose, your life being a temple of the spirit of the living God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table now, Lord, as we approach here to worship, Father, would you meet us here? Would you show us again in our spirit your son who loved us and gave himself for us? Lord, would out of this foundation you stir our hearts to devote ourselves to you, to determine how it is that I can give myself in, in strengthening your church, not for the church's sake, but for your glory, how it is that I can choose in my own life to worship and honor you rather than to serve myself. Lord, may we as a temple exist not for our good, but for your glory. Remind us of that in this table as we remember Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.